0: A quick note before we start episode 3. If you have never watched the surveillance video released by police of the person who left Jennifer Kessie's car at a condo complex just down the road from her home on January 24, 2006, then you need to watch that first. Much of what we will talk about in this episode will make a lot more sense if you've seen the video. There are some things that words just don't do justice to, and this is one of those things. We've put the video on our blog for episode 3 at unconcluded.com if that makes it easier for you. So go ahead and push pause right now, and go watch the video. Okay, welcome back. Let's get started. 24-year-old Jennifer Kessie disappeared January 24, 2006. She was last seen at her condo on Conroy Road. We're going to solve a missing persons case, which has haunted Orlando investigators.
1: So we're still waiting for that one person to come through with the one bit of information that could bring Jennifer home.
0: There's these two. These two guys keep watching me, and they're like, "I don't know if they're following me or what." Just hang on the phone for a second. Okay. I'm gonna, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk back by the. Uh, That's Scott on the, the phone. Sidewalk now. He's on location in Orlando at the place that Jennifer's car was dumped. Okay, yeah. And it's not going yeah, well. Yeah, yeah.
1: Just hang on the phone for a second. Just hang. I'm gonna. Uh, yeah. So, um, is the same uh, the same area, I guess. Um, all right, hold on. I'm gonna walk back this way now, cause. For some reason, they keep, like,
0: one of them, one of them's the other (sighs) Sorry, I'm getting very flustered here. Um,
1: All right, I'm just going to walk back around by the pool now, back around into the front, and probably walk back to my car, actually. And uh,
0: I'll probably get going. I'll I'll hang on the phone with you for a second, and then um, I'm going to hang up, and I'll give you a call back. In the back of my mind, I was seriously wondering if this was going to end well. And the unfortunate side effect of spending a lot of time at this particular location is that it's uncomfortable. But for this episode, we had to do it. So Scott made it out okay and everything was fine, but the reason I wanted you to hear that is, this place that we're gonna talk about today, that the video that you just watched happened, it's not a place that you really want to be. Welcome to episode 3 of Unconcluded, a real-time investigation podcast looking into the 2006 disappearance of Jennifer Kessie in Orlando, Florida. I'm Sean Gerd. When you get off at the Mall at Millennia exit on Interstate 4 in Orlando, just past Walt Disney World, there's a long exit ramp that ends at a massive Best Buy store. The exit then dumps off onto Conroy Road. It's a busy road, with retail stores everywhere. On the right side is the mall, and the left is littered with other retail establishments like Ethan Allen and DSW. A little further down on Conroy, after passing the massive congestion of stores, the Mosaic at Millennia condo complex rises. It's on the northern side of the road. Its three story buildings dwarf the small ranch style homes on the other side. It's here that Jennifer lived. It's a nice gated community close to the high end retail but this isn't where we're stopping today. We're continuing down Conroy Road to the intersection of John Young Parkway. Here, competing CVS and Walgreens drugstores frame a busy four-way intersection. And as we pass through that intersection, a seemingly different world awaits. Conroy Road changes its name to Americana Boulevard. And the scenery changes too. It doesn't feel anything like the area we just came from. Now, I do want to say that this is probably not the worst place in Orlando. In fact, I know it's not. I've been in some of those areas, and and they're worse. But that said, it's not great. Not even close. It's seedy. An area known for drugs and crime. And as we continue down that road, our intended destination, it's now in view. It's drab and dated two-story buildings surrounded by a perimeter parking lot and the sign that welcomes us to the Huntington on the Green. We turn left on South Texas Avenue, and a quick turn after that brings us into the parking lot at the Huntington on the Green. And it's here that we'll spend our time. As you pull into the parking lot, you'll notice the fenced pool enclosure on the left-hand side. A no guns allowed sign hangs on the gate. And directly behind that pool, is the spot where Jennifer Kessie's car was parked, way back in 2006, after she was abducted. We're going to tackle the biggest piece of evidence in the entire investigation, the poor quality surveillance video of the person leaving Jennifer's car behind during the early afternoon hours of January twenty-fourth, two thousand six.
1: And then you have that video. Yes, it's poor quality and what have you. But if we didn't have that video, we would. We would. The police probably would have just thought she disappeared on her own. And thank God we have that uh, video. And you know they all along the. That's Jennifer's mom,
0: Joyce. Remember, in the beginning, the police told the family that they thought Jennifer had left on her own because of an argument with her boyfriend. This video allowed it to become a criminal investigation. In the beginning, the police would refer to the person captured on the video as a person of interest, which you'll commonly hear shortened to POI. This was law enforcement's way of declaring the individual important, but not labeling them a suspect. Whatever their label was or is, this person is the primary suspect in this case. They are still the only confirmed individual who we know was somehow involved in Jennifer's disappearance. Now, before we move on, I want to remind you that we are looking into this case in real time. We have been and are going to continue to challenge the reported facts of the investigation. It's been 11 years of little progress, and at the same time, massive speculation. Together, that's created misinformation. In episode one, facts of the case, as they'd been universally reported, were presented. And by the time we got to episode two, they were already coming into question. All this goes to say that over the course of this investigation, things are going to change. The reason there have been two weeks between episodes is because this is coming together as we go along. Part of our intentions with this show are to correct the misinformation It's been out there for so long, and we're going to continue to do just that. In fact, if the narrative isn't changing and evolving over the course of the series, then we're not doing our job. This is important to remember because by the end of this episode, you'll find that it holds true again.
1: You've watched that video, I'm sure, probably a million times. You see that person pull into the parking spot, backing out, Pulling in, they sit in the car for 30 seconds, and they get out, and they never look back.
0: This is Joyce, the first time she had talked to me about the video.
1: And it's, you know, and again, the complex that her car wound up being dropped off, a a rundown condominium complex, Huntington-on-the-Green, but they had Video cameras, security cameras on the roof of the pool house, and that's where they got the film footage of Jennifer, of the suspect, the POI, and you know the FBI and everybody were out, and that's how they you know came up with the height for the person of interest. I still say they're they were wrong because Jennifer is five eight, and We all know the shoes that she was wearing the day she was abducted, and I know it's going to sound strange, Sean, but she was really proud that she had just gotten these nine West alligator pumps, Mm -hmm. and they weren't in her closet. And the outfits that she had left on her bed were tones of beiges that she would have worn brown shoes.
0: The surveillance video captured at the -the Huntington-on-the-Green condo complex on January 24, 2006, isn't clear. It captures only one frame per second and somehow doesn't manage to reveal the suspect's face at all. The only things captured in the video are a brief look at his clothing, the back of the head, and the shoes. As disappointing as that is, it still remains the single biggest lead in the entire case, which goes to explain exactly how much evidence that investigators had to go on in the first place. Jennifer Kessie was reported missing on the same day that the car was left at the the Huntington-on-the-Green, but that video wasn't discovered until two days later. On Thursday, January 26th, a resident at the the Huntington-on-the-Green reported to authorities that a black Chevy Malibu matching the description of Jennifer's car had been parked in their parking lot. Police quickly confirmed that this information was correct, and shortly thereafter were able to obtain the video. It's recorded from several different cameras above the clubhouse at the pool which is on the southwest side of the pool complex. I wanted to know what Joyce thought the first time that she had seen the person of interest. So I asked her.
1: That Friday, so it was the 24th, 25th, 26th, 27th. It was January 27th. It was the Friday. The The very first time we didn't see the video, the very first time we saw five still photos. Okay. So, they didn't show us the video right away. They showed us five photo still photos. My exact words were something like this Oh, my God, I think this person looks like a teenager. Look at how disproportionate the arms and legs are. Like that, you know, like a gawky teenager, mm-hmm. how you kind of, your arms and legs and your feet, because it looks like the person has big feet. Mm-hmm. That was exactly what I thought. I think it's a guy, I don't think it's a woman. And 11 years ago, there was a popular hairstyle because, and why do we know this? Because law enforcement, Drew and I would go to barbers with the picture and try to get somebody who knew of anybody who cut hair in that style. But it's it's like a tight, we think it's the the tight bun style. Um, This is a question, we were shown five stills. Okay. And, um... My son, Rob, and um, Drew were all there, and we the person didn't look like anybody any of us knew.
0: At first, some of those stills were all the public saw, too. The police made a strategic decision to not release the actual video, even though the Kessie family asked them to do so. They didn't end up releasing any of it until nearly 17 months later, in May of 2007.
1: It was a strategy that was used. The uh, law enforcement was hoping, obviously, in the beginning, that um, they were going to find Jennifer. Obviously, you know, it's still the goal, but you know, in the, the the beginning, and we kept asking them to release the video. We, as the family, kept saying, you know, release the video. The reason that the detectives didn't is because they wanted that to be the card up their sleeve, if you will. They wanted that when they did find the POI, that they could question them. And then if the POI said, um, well, I was never in the car, they'd be able to show the footage of the person getting in the car, backing out, pulling back in, sitting there for 30 seconds, and then walking away. You know, they wanted to be able to convict whoever did this. So um, that's why it wasn't released right away.
0: And we can now say that the strategy that they may have been trying to use, it didn't work. And police did end up releasing the video about 17 months later, as we had said. Part of that may be because there were new detectives in charge, but also because after 17 months, they had to try something. So with this video... What can be determined about Jennifer's abduction? Well, let's start with this. Jennifer didn't leave on her own. The video more or less confirms another person's involvement in her disappearance. Unless you are to believe that the person in the surveillance video is Jennifer herself, which, in my opinion, 100% is not the case, then at least one person is involved. We also know that this person was inside Jennifer's car, and that's why the current detectives on the case keep talking about that car. But the rest of the things in this video are up for debate. But before we get into trying to develop some theories from the video, there's a couple things that need to be clarified.
1: Now, another thing that's kind of interesting for you to know is that everybody keeps saying the person looks like a cook or maybe a painter because of the color clothing. What the FBI had found out, that videotape had been used reused reused multiple times taped over the camera sat in the sun on the top of a clubhouse when they were trying to get the height of the POI they had a FBI agent stand and you know they were doing their calculations to get the approximate height and weight everybody's clothing showed up the same color off-white. So that's kind of interesting, you know, that people still think that it's a painter, but it was because it was an old, they said it had something to do with the pixels and whatever, but law enforcement that were wearing, the uniformed officers that were being scanned by the footage from the FBI to come up with the calculations. They Their clothing whatever reason. I don't know. It makes no sense to me, but um, because it wasn't even the same camera. You Hmm. know what I'm saying? You have a security camera on the roof of the clubhouse, and then you have the FBI and the multiple um, TV stations trying to come up with the calculations.
0: The calculations Joyce are talking about is the calculations for the person of interest's height. Based on the height of the fence and the surrounding bushes and, and different landmarks, the FBI and police came up with a way to figure out how tall that person was, and they determined that the person of interest was between five foot three inches and five foot five inches. So I guess we can add that to the things that we now know because of the video. As for the rest of it, I've been watching this video over and over and over again to the point where I'm not sure I'm even seeing straight. So I decided to meet up with Scott to talk about it and see if I could clear my head just a little bit. We met in Lakeland, about halfway between Orlando and Tampa. It is sort of a delayed... 13, 13.01, 13.02, 13.03, 13.04, 13.05. He's... That was on 13.07 though, did you see that? Yeah, 13.07, but then it jumps to 13.20. So whatever 27 it's like 20 seconds so 20 seconds was that enough space and i think we figured out why the 27 there, was still on there there was a, yeah i think it i think there is a the the delay and then it's the second it's a it delay the frame. and then it's a second yeah, yeah so i think that's why so then, I, don't, I think that was nothing scott and i are sitting at a hotel table the recorder's on the table recording we're watching the video on scott's ipad and we're spending a lot of time talking about numbers we're talking about the timestamps, and how the numbers, and the video, and the way that they kind of match up—it's all on the screen, a though. little interesting. 31. Why are they even showing that if he's not even on the screen? Because it skips a second. Is he in there somewhere for that last second? And he they been, cut a whole second out of the he video. He's been down in the bush. Now, before I talk about what Scott and I are obsessing about. I want to make a point. The timestamps on the surveillance videos are one hour ahead of the actual time that these events were happening. The police determined that after the fact. So as I'm talking about the times that these events are occurring, I'm going to use the actual times. So if you're watching the videos, pay attention to the minutes and seconds, but not the hour. The hours I'm talking about will be one hour different than the videos show. So the video starts with the person of interest driving Jennifer's car into the parking lot behind the pool. They back up, pull back in, wait 32 seconds, and then get out of the car. You'll notice that the person exits the car at 11:59:45. By 11:59:53, the suspect has rounded the corner of the pool and is walking past the hot tub. By noon on the dot, that's 12: Zero, 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 0000, they're about one third of the way past the pool. And by noon 06, that is 12, zero o zero, six, the suspect exits the frame of that camera. And at noon 26, 12.0026, zero, zero, the suspect finally enters the frame of the next camera and is passing the far gate on the east side of the pool. So they go out of a frame at noon in six seconds and come back into a frame at noon in 26 seconds. Do the simple math, and there is 20 seconds of time that the suspect isn't shown. Why? Well, that's a good question. I have a hard time believing that there wasn't a camera angle that covered the majority of the pool area. The angle that's missing. So I wanted to take another look at this missing 20 seconds, but I quickly realized that I needed an expert to weigh in on some of this stuff. I had suspected that the camera's timestamps would be all run off of a central system, but I needed confirmation. I needed to know that the timestamps on all these different cameras would all be showing the same exact times. So I reached out to an expert, a person who owns a security company that installs these cameras, and has been doing so for a really long time. Unfortunately, he wouldn't agree to have his voice heard on the podcast, but he was more than willing to answer my questions. So I'm going to share his answers with you now. The first thing I asked him is if it was common for security cameras to only capture still frames every second or so, and his answer was very clear, 100% yes, especially in 2006. He said that the cameras would have been analog, and they would have been recording in time-lapse to the recorder on the tapes. And this led to my second question, and I wanted to know about the timestamps. Would there be separate timestamps on separate cameras that could possibly be out of sync? And again, he told me in 2006, these cameras would have been connected to a central recorder. They wouldn't have had their own timer or their own timestamps. This central recorder would have recorded all the timestamps. So all these different cameras, they would have used the same timer, on the same recorder. And so, to my answer my question, yes all of those timestamps they would have matched up this was important because if i wanted to compare and analyze the times of these stamps between different cameras i needed to know that they were all kind of ticking at the same time for me this was confirmation that there was a missing 20 seconds of time the first thing i thought about when i realized that there was 20 seconds missing that we didn't know what the suspect was doing was whether or not it would have taken 20 seconds to walk from where the suspect walked out of the frame Of the first camera and into the frame of the second camera. And Scott and I spent hours trying to reconstruct this. We walked at the Huntington on the Green. We had our wives walk, or at least Scott did. We used measurement tools to measure the distance between where the suspect appeared to go off camera and come back onto the camera. And at the end of the day, the the calculations, they're not an exact science. But here's what I came up with. I believe that it is about 102 feet from where the suspect goes off the first camera and reappears on the second camera. 102 feet for him to walk in that 20 seconds. I also think that based on the speed that he was walking in the video that I could determine that he was moving at about 6 feet per second. So if you do the math this means that it would have taken him about 17 seconds to walk the distance that I think he walked. That's only 3 seconds different from what the video would have implied. So, I'm not sure that we can draw any specific conclusions here. I'd like to be able to say that there's 3 seconds missing and what did the suspect do during those 3 seconds? But because the inexact science of my calculations, I think that 3 seconds is within the the realm of possibilities. So, for now, I'm going to table that discussion. But what we still need to consider is the fact that there is 20 full seconds that the suspect was likely captured on video that we haven't been shown. And What exactly is going on in that 20 seconds, and why haven't the public been able to see it? I understand the reasons behind an investigation holding some things back, but what I can not understand is why you would hold back the one opportunity for the public to be able to help in this case, to identify this person of interest that has gone unidentified for 11 years. But before we move on, I want to be clear. It's my opinion that there's just no way that over half of the pool area was conveniently unmonitored. And there's other reasons too that I'm just not comfortable mentioning yet, but I believe 100% that there is part of this video that we have not seen. So let's go ahead and look into the part of the video that we do have, and try to determine what we're looking at. A lot of people, when they first watch the video, they think the person of interest is a painter. Maybe a cook someone in hospital scrubs, or even a cricket player. Yeah, I I kid you not, there are threads on the internet discussing if this person is dressed in cricket gear. And I'll admit, the first time you watch the video, you're likely to think a lot of the same things. The person does appear to be wearing some type of construction outfit, or landscaping outfit, or painting outfit. And certainly, that could be the case. But there are just so many different options so many different possibilities that it's hard to even make sense of. So, let's review what's seen in the video of the POI. Starting head to toe, there's an interesting shape on the back of the person's head. You've heard Joyce refer to it as maybe a bun, and it could be. It could be a short ponytail or maybe even some kind of slick back style. But in looking at it closely, it could also be a hat. You can make the case for several different varieties one of those Kangol newsboy type hats turned backwards, a rolled up stocking cap creating a little lip that projects backwards, or even a bicycle helmet. The video images are so unclear that over the past week or two, I've convinced myself at different points that it was each of those things. Moving down to the torso, it's clear that the suspect's shirt is a lighter color than the bottoms. The shirt appears to be short sleeve, and it fits large on the suspect. The pants are slightly darker than the shirt and appear baggy on the suspect as well. They also appear to be cinched at the bottom. They're like tapered pants or maybe a rubber band or elastic holding them tight to the leg. And finally, there are the shoes. The shoes appear too large for the suspect. They're dark and somewhat boxy. They have the looks of some kind of work shoe or boot, but any more detail than that is impossible. So at this point, I think it's pretty clear. The only thing that we know is that we don't know anything at all. Some of you have sent more specific theories to us, and we've looked at and considered them. But I don't think there's anything more at this point that the theories can prove. We've decided that we're going to present some of them, but we're not going to do it on this show. We're going to make them part of a separate episode that we'll release in between this episode and episode four. So you can look for that in the coming week. But there's something else I want to mention too. And this doesn't really have anything to do with a physical appearance, but it has something to do with maybe our understanding of this person. When we pulled into the the Huntington-on-the-Green and parked in the same spot where Jennifer's car was parked, there was a sidewalk directly in front of her car. This sidewalk led behind the pool, through a couple of different buildings, and out to the road, Americana Boulevard, that the suspect used to walk after he dropped off the car. This particular route would have been shorter, more concealed, not in front of the security cameras, and just a better overall decision for the suspect. But instead, they chose to walk out around the pool, where there were video cameras, where there were more people, and where there were cars. Why would they do this? The only thing that makes sense to me is that this person was not familiar at all with the Huntington on the Green. They'd maybe never even been there before. I don't know if this really tells us anything, but... It helps narrow down our suspects a little bit. We know that this person is probably not from that immediate vicinity. It just makes no sense to walk all the way around the pool, potentially exposing yourself when you had a better route. I can say now without a doubt that I understand the frustrations that this video has caused. It gives you hope for a moment that there's some evidence a trail to follow. Maybe something can come of it. But then you realize that there's not really anything there. Yes, we can confirm that Powell Play was involved. Yes, there's maybe some finite details that we can gather. But there's just nothing there that helps lead us down a path to finding Jennifer. And it hasn't done that for eleven years. It's frustrating. I can't imagine what it's been like to live with that frustration. I watched an interview with Drew Cassie where he talked about having that person of interest taped up on a wall or something and in his house and staring at it every night. I can't imagine what that's like. I've been staring at it for two weeks and I'm tearing my hair out. He's been staring at it for 11 years. We're leaving this episode with no more suspects than we started with, and so we're going to move on. And in investigations like this, it's typical to start by looking at the people who are closest to the victim, or those that have a history with the victim. And that's where we're going to start, too.
1: I can't explain why he would come from the UCF area to the condo. To the um, mall across the street from Jennifer, I can't answer that. It, it, it's curious, for sure.
0: In episode four, we're going to start our journey down the slippery slope rabbit hole of possible suspects in this case. But before we go, there's one more thing I need to mention, and it's pretty important. When I talked to Joyce after we published episode two, she had listened back to the episode with Drew and realized she'd made a mistake.
1: I was mistaken, and Drew had thought when he listened to your podcast,
0: uh-huh. um,
1: he corrected me. But And then he looked back in the notes. We kept, I told you, our own timeline of things. The actual dog track to the bottom step of the staircase. Jennifer lived on the second floor of a condo building that was open-air hallways. The uh-huh. back there... The back stairwell was to parking spots. To a parking spot. The front stairwell overlooked the water. The dog tracked back to the bottom of the steps at the water, at the you know steps that overlooked the pond. She overlooked the pond. Okay. So just to clarify. So, and those steps oh, led I mean, up to the second floor, though. Yeah, it would let up to the second floor. Well, okay. so I was mistaken okay. when I said it It, will, it went to her um, parking spot. I thought it went to the okay. parking spot and sat, but it went to that step, the bot, you know, the bottom of the staircase, and the dog stayed. So I just wanted to clarify that for you.
0: So in addition to starting our look at possible suspects, we're also going to need to go back and tie up some loose ends at Jennifer's condo. And we'll do that next time on Unconcluded. Thanks again for joining us. Before we go, I wanna share a piece of my conversations with Joyce. There's something that she wants you to know.
1: Yeah, just, um, you know, if you can somehow impart how grateful we are for the, um, for you, um, taking such an interest in uh, Jennifer and um, her journey, if you will. Um, And we're just grateful for all of the people that have been following the story and we're appreciative of your new listeners who now you know will follow the story
0: we'll be back in two weeks with episode four however scott and i have been getting a lot of emails and social media messages and we want to respond to them so before episode four in just a week we're going to release another show that will be a little bit different format answering and responding to those questions and comments and talking about other things that just don't fit into an episode So keep those questions and comments coming, and thank you for continuing down this journey with us. Unconcluded is produced by Scott J. and myself, and all music is by PC3.